So I went on to Zine to check out some of the climate change and quarantine things you were sending me for this episode. And I was curious if there was anything on the BLM protests. There was like, there was only one thing on there. It was like, it was a black square thing. And it was literally just like two paragraphs and a list of like well-known architects, I, I assume. I don't know any of them. Someone will know them. Someone will know yeah. them. <laughs> it's like the most minimal, thinnest gesture that people do uh, on social media. And it's just copied and pasted as an article. And that's all they had. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, like the zine as like the scavenging institution that it is will just like turn, construct <laughs> construct an entire news piece <laughs> just saying these are the names of some architects that you may have heard of that yeah. put, put a black square on their Twitter and that's a news article it's nice it's like their own black square gesture exactly. not, to, not to include images of the architect's work <laughs> Which is what they'd always have. It's a otherwise. meta black square, yes. I mean, the the, the, the the zine article starts with the black square, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Itself. They're doing it themselves, itself. yeah, for sure. But the black square now doesn't refer to the black struggle. It refers to the architects putting black squares like about the yeah. black struggle. <laughs> and somehow also their own lack of content. Yes, yes. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, it's, I mean, I, I mean, although I, I must say in defense of the zine, lack of content is not a thing they suffer from in a, in a purely <laughs> formal sense. Like, in order to find this article, yeah. you had to go through at least 7 billion of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, To find one. Not, not 7 billion to... on BLM, though. No, no, no. In general, to find in one. Sweden. They haven't had time to, like, all of these architects whose names are identified in this one design article, they didn't have time to do a project about BLM yet. I mean, I mean, obviously that's kind of obvious, easy into grasp level of superficiality, right? Yeah, yeah. I I I, I haven't seen this before. Uh, I don't do social media, but the um, like what I like about this is, I I I I've seen some things where like people are criticizing big corporations that did the kind of a version of this, but when they basically make put that in the form of like with a little bit of an ad in it or some kind of... Yeah, like a corporate statement in yeah, response to the... Exactly, yeah. the kind of uh, our corporate values find racism objectionable or something like yeah, that. Yeah. And then go buy our shoes. We have a special BLM line. Yeah. Uh, so there's this... And obviously, kind of, I, I've seen some of some kind of obvious and correct criticisms of this, but... Somehow looking at the uh, like the OG thing, the uh, black square stuff that's become kind of the generalized Twitter, social media, liberal response, solidarity thing yeah. uh, to what's happening. Like, I like... You like the corporate one better. I like the corporate <laughs> one better. <laughs> like, they're like this... At least having the ad things like there's there's like a social function somewhere there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's absolutely disgusting, but the uh, the black square Malievich vibe, the whole thing, like it it makes me kind of feel like going into a Stalinist rant against abstractionist art <laughs> and demanding figurative, uh, yeah. representational art picturing the oppression and picturing the heroic struggle, the historic heroic struggle of the black working class in America. Yeah, like yeah. I, said, I don't want fucking black. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's this, the vacuousness of a detachment from actual engagement. And obviously not to mention like historical ignorance of the reality of the black struggle in America and blah, blah, blah. And it's kind of, yeah, it's a totally performative It's kind of gesture. Marvel version of the Black Panther, right? In in which the actual historical Black Panther is painted as the bad guy and the good guy is supported by the CIA. Anyway, uh, <laughs> it's, it's like the abstractionist emptiness of the black square kind of has all of these meanings in my brain yeah. of complete detachment from reality. This, 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 this kind of aestheticization of politics in the kind of Benjaminian terms in the way in which he basically like defined what fascism is uh like this whole kind of abstraction kind of grates me profoundly yeah. like 
I, I just want, like, what, I've, what it makes me feel like is to kind of convene an all-union congress of artists and just decide as a kind of a collective party line that everyone must follow, go in the streets and paint what you see in painterly qualities <laughs> with just, like, 19th century... Uh, conservative uh, <laughs> format. Yeah. I mean, obviously we want a socialist realist take on it, yeah, of yeah, course, yeah. like like the revolutionary black art of the 1960s and 70s, right? Yeah. By the way, uh, there was also kind of basically socialist realist. That's what, like, I want it to be mandatory to do that. No abstraction. <laughs> yeah, especially from uh, white liberals sitting at home on their cell phones looking to get involved. Right. I mean, like losing themselves in the void of the black square as an, uh, an, like an empty signifier for the infinite multiplicities of like freedom yeah. that they can imagine yeah, yeah. in their couches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even in like Instagram terms, you could have like a nice Maoist rant no right to speak without investigation. Like the people on the streets posting actual photos of what the police are doing, of all the violence and oppression. Like those people are actually there. That's why they have those photos. If you're not there, you don't have the photos. You just post a black square. It's like, but yeah, you could like Maoist oppression of this kind of performative gesture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, no right to speak if you're not there on the ground. Yeah, and these are like all of these liberal uh, architects, woke, liberal woke corporate architects uh, that probably all they do is gentrification projects that yeah, kick, yeah, people, kick black people out of their homes in the periphery. Obviously, that's what they do. Like, like I mean, these names that are listed in the zine, like obviously those people are in quarantine in their homes. Like they're... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, also because they're they're British, but now there's protests also in Britain. Uh, yeah, it, it you're in the home. It's like the the COVID the extra extra level of legitimation of detachment. <laughs> Even half is kind of this. I mean, it, it's an extra uh, layer that allows liberals to kind of jerk off their uh, wokiness in even more radically abstraction, <laughs> abstract terms. Yeah. So, welcome back to Street Sweeper. Yeah. Your friendly neighborhood left architecture podcast. Yeah. Protests are sweeping the streets. And Indeed. we're here in uh, audio land <laughs> to talk shit. So, yeah, so this is, my name's Will. I'm Ricardo. And today uh, we're going to continue our discussion from episode one on the inside. The inside. I'm going to go back to the uh, lesser source, the high culture source, architectural review. Yeah, like we decided, like we learned at the end of episode one, the zine was better than the architectural review and then proceeded to make the second episode about architectural review. Yeah, we just want to be thorough and balanced. Right? <laughs> we don't exclude content just because it's not funny. Well, of course not. We promise it's funny. So I was listening to Useful Idiots podcast uh, with Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper. Right. And they're going through... One of our favorites. Right? One of our favorites. Wake me up. <laughs> is, it, is, it, is it non-woke to like it? Oh, God. Have we gone that far? <laughs> Oops. Well, this was this was the uh, this is what they were talking about. They're talking about media censorship uh, and kind of canceling around uh, certain kinds of takes on the BLM protests, right? Um, which is a difficult can be a difficult thing, right? Like uh, no one's crying over New York Times editors being sacked for for like Tom Cotton opinion pieces or like whatever i don't know who tom cotton is i don't I, I don't know from america yeah you're better off that way <laughs> uh but then there's like the Li fang Li fang story on the intercept uh where he's kind of being forced to apologize for uh an interview he posted and it's tricky because lee like 
yeah, it's like it, 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 it's a whole shitload of comp, like a, yeah. a mini reign of terror of yeah. like political opinion right now, which we kind of like, right? I mean, we we sort of have a certain appreciation of revolutionary terror. I, I, not that we're that, not that what's happening right now is necessarily revolutionary terror. No, but it's, it's like, light 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 terror. It's a kind of a light terror. It, it, it's nice, like the uh, like obviously the problem is that all of the illusions of uh, democratic institutions are sort of collapsing, right? Right. Like, it's becoming more and more clear that all of the democracy nonsense is not real, as long as you have kind of a monopoly capitalist control over whatever institutions there is, and, of course, that's always the case. So, like, obviously the faith in the equal treatment before the law for all citizens has already collapsed, and that's what's happening. There's all connected to the collapse of, like, right. faith in that that the the government and the state and the regular flow of business and the markets and whatever will ensure a certain quality of life for people, because obviously now 50% of Americans are out of a job. And on top of that, now you have also the collapse of the illusion of, like, free speech, Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, like the the, the whole and just notion like that media media neutrality. Yeah. Like no no one trusts mainstream media, obviously. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of generally lost all credibility yeah. over the past four years. Uh, in both from both like in between. Uh, but this is the, yeah, like the that, notion of neutrality and objectivity has disappeared, and obviously, uh, both on the left, the treatment of Sanders, and on the right, on the like. The way in which Trump was attacked, which was the least possible operative way, uh, obviously, like, and now there's just like terror of control of public opinion that, that you can say, right? Yeah, and that's kind of good. Yeah, it's uh, politicization. Yeah, it's like changing the field of battle. Like, there's no more about like you're not no longer safe just because you have a job in mainstream news organization. Yeah, there's like outrage culture reached what you can say and outreach culture reaching what you can say can be like it's a, it's a two-edged blade yeah uh but it creates a situation where yeah all uh, what there is is like a vicious debate in society about political positions that's what it means yeah and like like so many other debates in a capitalist society it's itself subject to market pressures like people are competing for bandwidth, people are competing for positions, both at like mainstream outlets and alternative outlets. People compete on tw on Twitter basically for the hot and spiciness of their takes. Right. All this is subject to a kind of market competition. Right. Uh, in the marketplace of ideas, right. So even cancel culture, which is like excluding people from the market, itself is subject to market rules right. to a certain extent. This is all complicated, right? Yeah, and, and uh, there's people being censored kind of literally left and right in ways that may be great or may not be so great. Yeah. But within this discussion, there was a, there's a particular nugget right. that I think is useful for us, which is the headline from the Philadelphia, Inquir Philadelphia Inquirer from uh, Tuesday, June 2nd. Buildings matter too. Right. Which is just a great formulation, I think, it's, yeah, for our it's, purposes. It's excellent. <laughs> the the editor was fired for this one. And Matt's take was like, this is bad rhetoric. Because if you actually read, I read a bit of the article. It's not that bad. Mm. It's kind of, I mean, it does this kind of, you know, protect small businesses, protect small architectures. Yeah, this will uh, fine. You know, and... Puts it in the context of gentrification to it, like critical of gentrification. So that's good. So that's good. So maybe it's more of a rhetorical problem. I don't know. I don't. I mean, yeah, the title is just terrible. Like you can't say that. No, you that can't way. say that. Like we're that's not, that's yeah. not you can't. That's not okay. And we're not going to do a close reading of this of Obviously. this article. So yeah, whatever. But I think yeah, the title the title I think is what we want to look at. Yeah, we want to be aggressively superficial on this. Yeah, you can you can read a lot into this title, both like. Okay, which buildings matter? Like it's kind of an all lives matter type position. We're not, we're not. Yeah, it's not saying these specific buildings that have been systematically mistreated matter. Yeah, it's saying basically all the all isn't there, but it's implied. Yeah, right? yeah, and it just seems like a perfect. 
is the perfect motto for so many of the the ideas we cover and like architectural discourse frameworks we look at. Like the the buildings matter too. I mean this this editor was canceled because this is the you know all lives matter, blue lives matter formula, right? Okay, black lives matter, but countertake buildings matter too. Right. Right. It's kind of a reaction it's a reactionary it's, it's a clear reactionary formulation. Yeah. Period. But this is precisely the formulation that so much architectural discourse takes like when confronting real political Yeah, 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 struggles. yeah, yeah. Like the, uh, the the architectural version of this obviously this debate isn't really about architecture but it it it, it expresses the debate that exists within architecture yeah in the way it, which it relates to like politics proper yeah uh, in the end of the day the, talking about buildings matter too in a general sense I mean obviously the the problematic antagonism here is placing buildings at the same level of black lives but if right. we take that like remove yourself from that dimension and just go. So you're saying all buildings matter. You're erasing the specificity of the buildings that are disenfranchised systematically and oppressed. And, yeah. the, and there are buildings that are systematically disenfranchised. And surprise, like, surprise, they're related it's to the specific one, people. It's the ones where black people and people of color and poor people in general live. It's yeah. public housing. It's public services associated buildings. Yeah. It's the buildings of the welfare state. It's the evil modernism that is has this kind of consensus in our architectural postmodern conditions since the 1970s that correspond to some kind of evil normalization of yeah. ways of life that force the poors into boxes. Like, the poors want those boxes right now and you're demolishing them and they're trying to defend their boxes. Yeah. <laughs> and most of their those poors, or a very large proportion of those poors, are people of color. It's poor, it's, it's poor people. Excuse me. It's... Oh, you can't see the poors. No. <laughs> By the way, this, this this is actually a thing that we copied directly from and like shamelessly from useful idiots. The the cancel yeah. button every time we are problematic. But we have two cancel buttons in our vanguardist right. Marxist Leninist podcast. <laughs> One is for when we break the woke uh, orthodoxy. Yeah, there's there's, li there's basically liberal political correctness. Yes. And uh, Marxist, communist no, yes, political correctness. Yes, and when when we 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 break the liberal political correctness, we do the woke button just like them. Yeah. When we break the uh, Marxist communist political orthodoxy, we play the Soviet anthem. Yeah. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. So stay go tuned go for that go day. go on. <laughs> I forgot what I was talking about. <laughs> you're you're telling me about. Quote, unquote, the poors. I was telling you about the poors living in the, the systematically oppressed and discriminated against yeah. poors, living precisely in the buildings that are also discriminated against and oppressed. Yeah, yeah like, it, like after the... And no one cares about those buildings every time no. they want to save architecture. Right. They I are mean, ignoring specifically those buildings. Yeah, and, and well, you could even flip this, this headline around too. Like the phrase would be, buildings don't matter, architecture matters. Right. Or like... I mean, you, you could say housing matters and people would say architecture matters yeah. would be the like blue lives matter exactly. reactionary counterpoint to saying housing matters. And that's effectively what they keep saying. Yeah. Like the, it's uh, the, our, our fundamental problem that made us start this is that everyone since 2016 when the whole repoliticization of architecture and the new lefts in architecture and blah, blah, blah emerged... Our core issue is that they all like the, the discourse started with like housing matters essentially. Yeah, that's where it started. It started with this is the reality of the condition of Th and those are the political movements outside of the architectural discipline. Yeah, like this 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 has this this pressure for the housing crisis in London. It was very clear, but it's more or less kind of generalized. Yeah, uh, it, certainly in the collective West. Like the pressures coming from this that obviously it stem from the 2008 crash and its ongoing economic yeah. recession. The whole point about the repoliticization of architecture was starting with architects actually paying attention to the demands for reinvestment in housing 
as part of a kind this kind of growth since 2016, Corbyn and uh, Sanders in the Anglo world uh, of uh, kind of reinvesting in the welfare state, essentially, reconstructing the welfare state and housing is the architectural version of that. And it starts with housing, but five minutes later, everyone who starts with housing has shifted from housing into architecture in a kind of an abstract yeah. sense. It's systematic, and that's what we, we want to look at. I mean, this was very clear already. We were, we were building in towards this in the first episode, where the kind of opportunistic, disciplinary, paying attention to what's going on in the real world approach kind of transforms into kind of using the real problems to resuscitate architecture and revalidate architecture instead of transforming architecture to actually, to actually serve the real world, right? Yeah. This kind of reversal of like housing matters into architecture matters. This is something like we're going to continue our discussion from last week, right? Right, right, right. And this is a theme that I was picking up on a lot from the architectural review issue, like the COVID. Yeah, the inside, inside. middle class angst. Almost every text in here. And I did read almost every text in here. So I'm giving you like 100% of my partial reading of this text, 90% reading of the text, uh, includes some kind of political gesture, right? like good faith political point about how uh, when we're forced back into our domestic interiors, like it reveals certain contradictions, certain inequalities, blah, blah. Almost all the texts in here have that take. But they almost immediately, like to a text with maybe one... one exception, shift their attention immediately towards the things that they take for granted and enjoy about their domestic space. Right. There's a text in here that's like a perfect example right. of this kind of double gesture, right? political gesture, and then immediately undermining it with like a, a counterpoint. This essay is called Body Dwelling by Lily Zarzitsky. It begins, between body frontier and the city's door, There's a whole dramatic scene, a domestic landscape, flush full of curiosities at every scale. The space is so familiar that it makes room for dreaming, so habitual that physical rhythms have become unconscious, unconstrained. Patterns of padding, twos and fros, tracts of wear, thinning and incremental amassment, building up to so much static matter of inhabitation, Streams of passage cut between furniture, between hill and crag, jagged chasm slicing between chair and table, bed and desk, hemmed in at the edge by the wall's protective shell. This is not one room, but an entire territory, a mountainous expanse for the trauma. Like she's describing the shitty studio apartment that you're forced to live in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's that's talking about, it's... it's described like the object it's talking about is an incredibly cramped space. Yeah, but it's kind of portrayed in this kind of heroic kind of. I can, I can imagine like kind of a Lord of Lords of the Rings yeah, kind yeah. of landing helicopter going, going through. Yeah, you see this kind of they're, they're passing through like the 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 valleys of the Misty Mountains, trying to like escape the Balrog or something. Yeah, yeah, and it's kind of. <laughs> This this this, <laughs> this functions under the under the slogan, a person's flat is their castle, basically. Right. This is like peak conservative. Uh, uh, yes, exactly, exactly. Vibes from, from and it's like really rental. it's like it's the it's the complete reduction of like uh, the bourgeois interior to the apex of the pathetic. Like it's the the person who clearly no longer has any objective bourgeois condition, but who is desperately struggling to cling to the bourgeois subjectivity. So they're projecting on their obviously precaritized, underpaid, ultra-exploited working-class condition. And they're just like trying to interpret that personal reality in a way that still maintains an aura of bourgeois consumerism and flannerism. Even the, if the only place they can be a flaneur now is in the crags and valleys of the mountainscape of the 50 centimeter gap between their bed and their desk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Let's continue with this. There's even a, there's even, like she, she brings it home on a, on, a, on a perfect note. 
Liberation is left, perhaps, in designing with a will towards adaptation, in surroundings that soften to be altered. There is undeniable beauty produced by the great depths of attention paid to certain phenomena in architecture. Architecture does matter. Mm -hmm. From the grip of the door handle to the rasp of gravel or echo of a certain tile. You know, I've often dwelt on the echo of a certain tile. Yes. There's an accompanying tendency, though, for that agonizingly bespoke architecture to become also irresolute, authoritarian, for its precision to also preclude human interaction. This is really a problematic I have no experience with. I have no idea what she's talking about. What? Machine living dictates a certain kind of life, a drive towards efficiency, the divinely curated home enforcing certain patterns of propriety, of sitting up straight and other social structures. These curations are aspirational, Bright and breezy, and smelling of stainless steel. This is this is real. This is all. This is precisely all lives matter type bullshit. This is a situation. We are in a situation where the poor's <laughs> poor people. Thank you the, very much. We are in a situation poor where folk even the poor folk, uh, poor folk. No, no. The oh, well, we we should just cancel the word folk. I think <laughs> we are in a situation where. Like a very large percentage of working people are losing the capacity to pay for the rent. There's going to be a massive wave of evictions all over the first world in the consequence of the economic crisis triggered by or accelerated by COVID. Uh, people are, have been losing their homes systematically for years and years and years of gentrification, real estate speculation. Like poor families, a large portion of them people of color, in London, for example, where this journal is based, magazine is based on a journal. Uh, the people, uh, people are losing their homes in the hundreds of thousands or even possibly millions in the very near future. Yeah. And this person is talking about the homes in which they live, the modernist social housing estates, being evil totalitarian things because they restrain the liberty of privileged individuals, even if the privilege is completely well, not, constructive I, at the subjective level. Yeah, yeah. This person isn't even privileged anymore at the material level. Yeah. But it maintains the middle class privilege. In the, in the, in the, in like a, as a back, backhanded compliment to this author, I don't think she's even talking about modernist housing here. She's talking basically about like uh, Corbusian villas. She's talking about, of course, no, she's not talking about modernist housing, but she is, like, yeah. she, because it's not part of her concept of architecture. Right. Her concept of architecture excludes the buildings that are oppressed, where the people who are oppressed live. That doesn't count as architecture, even. Like, the concept of architecture has become so historiographically perverted that it doesn't even count among its, within she, itself, she's doing the stuff that actually matters. She, she's got a dialectic here where she's going from cheap mass-produced accessibility to bespoke modernism. So she, she cancels accessible functionalism, mass-produced, industrialized. Then she goes on to like, well, there was, there is within modernism like this concern for ergonomics and specificity of the design. So then she, now she's canceling out that form of modernism this is like a full anti-modernism, broad spectrum right. anti-modernism. And what, what's the like? What is she trying to solve? What is the what is she trying to save? What is the political call to action here? If it isn't just these curations are aspirational, these modernist curations, bright and breezy, and smelling of stainless steel, they are a signifier of moderate success, good, clean health, of an energetic life, well put to order and robustly maintained. At the same time, scruff, mess, misaligned objects, unkempt bodies, and strange mannerisms become matter out of place. We are pressed into lines, as Sarah Ahmed puts it, bodies shaped by the objects that surround them and their surfaces, rewritten by what is in reach. The organization of the nuclear family is expressed in kitchens and across dining tables. Its children pressed to reproduce both the heterosexual line and accompanying divisions of labor. This is the second time that she actually uses divisions of labor. The first time is in a different this is, text. This same. is so garbage. And this it's purely pure garbage. domestic labor. This is, this is aggressively like, 
this is worse than what I was saying. Like, it's not just the white lives matter argument in regards to architecture, or it's not just a all lives matter argument in regards to architecture. It's a, a somehow a kind of a fusion between the all lives matter argument, which disregards the actual lives being actually oppressed right now as we speak, and historically over the past decades. But it kind of manages to fuse the reactionary all lives matter rhetorical gesture with wokeism, with woke yeah. uh, kind of pro-diversity argument. I mean, this is a pro-diversity argument against uh, what effectively was the architectural culture that solved the problem of housing, where yeah. still the poors live, right? This is basically like... Bohemian lives matter, right? Bohemian architecture. Yeah, matters. the diversity is in, is interpreted specifically within the Bohemian, yeah, kind of uh, flanner context. There's a there's a twist here where she comes to the architectural argument. Her architectural argument. She says, "What constructions of difference of selfhood could then be gained by the expressive exertion?" of the body on its surroundings, forgetting even structural interventions and other alterations set out of the reach of renters. Aside, I assume she means structural, like in the literal sense of arc, like building structure, right. not structural like the housing renting market. Right. The home might still be a site of transformation or of self-formation. <sighs> a living cabinet of personal curiosities full of troughs and furrows of far too large furniture handed on or found on street corners and crammed into the flat, partially reupholstered by untrained hands and collated in an aesthetic of taking what you can get, cushy and brimming with soft surfaces and stacks of paper, books on books and folded bedding. These arrangements coil around and chain the body as it moves through space. The space between them, the body and its surroundings is recipro reciprocal here each acting on, around, and into the other. <laughs> then it, she goes on to talk about Kirchfitter's Merzbau as like the ideal of, I guess, democratically, democratic housing provision. Mm. Like everybody should have a, uh, a uh, installation art piece to live inside. Yeah. That's like what we need. Right. So that's the alternative project. That's tear down those evil modernists housing estates where poor people in great numbers of color live and just give them a, an art installation, problem solved. This recalls, yeah, exactly. This recalls something I was reading. It will be so much better for them. They can express their individuality. That's true. Diver like This is exactly woke diversity. Yeah. This is a diversity that, ex like, you can, you want as much diversity as possible within the specific condition of middle-class bohemianism. But like the real diversity of people out there, like the real diversity of people who need to have that social housing estate to live in, that is just that it's not, it doesn't even enter the equation. Yeah. This is just ultimate privilege posing as inclusion. This is like a, a, an offensive attack on even the idea of, pro, of providing public right, housing. Right, right. And then a defense of the renters like self project right. project of self construction. Yeah, it's essentially like, uh, housing as a personal entrepreneurial yeah. uh, notion. You need to basically it, it's like the whole like uh, right wing uh, like pull yourself up by your bootstraps type situation, but presented as an art project. Yeah. So like poor people just need to invent their own living art project objectively what you're saying is you don't get social housing, get fucked. Yeah. And the other... You should, you should come up with some kind of cool alternate living and maybe get a kind of a cultural bursary or whatever. Yeah. In the end of the day, it's not very different from the whole like like learn to code thing when people are getting... Right. It's exactly right. the same thing, learn but on hipster. the cultural industry. Learn, so learn to, to hipster. hipster. Yeah. Learn to... Are you a poor black person in London? Learn to hipster. There's another text in here. It's a photo essay with text by the same author. And it's, yeah, just like photos 
within it's like making an art project out of your flat basically. right right but this whole like i was reading samuel stein's capital city the other day mm. and this recalled like there's a really nice point in here about when he's talking mostly about new york city and gentrification right about when uh new york when gentrification became a particular like a unique and distinct dynamic in new york city as compared to like slum clearances and other right, historical right. shifts in the city. And the conversion of former industrial spaces, as well as former working class housing, like brownstones and lofts, basically. There was a kind of entrepreneurial makeover of those spaces by landlords and renters. And this was a privileged framework for how the problem of housing and the problem of poor neighborhoods was treated. There's a really nice quote in here. In her book, Loft Living, soci sociologist Sharon Zukin quotes a Soho resident recalling a crucial public hearing on a proposed artist district. Quote, there were lots of other groups giving testimony on other matters. Poor people from the South Bronx and Bedstui complaining about rats, rent control, and things like that. The board just shelved those matters and moved right along. They didn't know how to proceed. Then they came to us. All the press secretaries were there and the journalists. The Klieg lights went on and the cameras started to roll. And all these guys started making speeches about the importance of art to New York City. This is the historical reality of all this shit. Yeah, the, and everything everyone says about like investing in culture in the city. This is not really investing in culture in the city. Investing like all, all of this motion in real estate in is city. investing in real estate, yeah. in speculative real estate, is investing in gentrification, kicking out poor. That's what this is, and it has been this since the archigram invented the fucking blimp. Yeah. Uh, yeah, like this. This is the architectural culture of the contemporary period. This is the postmodern condition yeah. in architectural ideology. Everything everyone says is a gentrification project. This whole thing about, I mean, this is a theme we're going we're gonna to hit regularly. Right. The critique of, of modernist housing, basically. And in particular, it's focus on the domestic interior. There's another, I know you've got some disease shit we, we want to get to. I just want to say there's another article in here that directly connects to this, which is the text, Corridors of Uncertainty. Uh, the text, it's actually... Kind of a fun read to a certain extent, got to admit. It's, it's, it's uh, formatted in Star Wars. It's formatted in Star Wars with this kind of perspectival foreshortening, like kind of trapezoidal or, text blocks. Right. It's a corridor. It's a corridor. Uh, basically, it says the corridor is a modern, modern type. Mm. True. Eh, whatever. Long, long, long extension. Whatever, modern. yeah. Like if, if you were, when we say modern, we're not talking about modernist. Yeah. In architectural terms, we're talking no, about modern history since the 15th, 16th, 17th yeah, century, yeah. whatever. And it goes back. It go, I mean, it begins in the 19th century. It goes back a couple of centuries mm. and then up into the present. Whatever, right. It identifies corridors with institutional architecture, with mental health. It talks about how like corridor spaces, institutional spaces were eliminated in the, in the 80s and 90s under neoliberalism. It basically connects the corridor to modern public infrastructure. Right. Like the corridor right. is the public infrastructure. That's nice. Yeah, that's I'm, nice. I'm, I'm adding my You're, you're constructing a, a progressive yeah, angle yeah. on this. The text is basically saying the corridors are creepy, uh, <laughs> but that creepiness is the creepiness of modernism and also to a certain extent of like the welfare state. Right. And it ends on the ambiguity of like corridors are now basically like gone uh, from architecture, just like the welfare state is sort of gone from architecture and modernism is gone from architecture. But the particular, like the creepiness, I think this is the opportunity to read how like the, the concept of the unheimlich, of like the, the otherworldly or the creepy, which is, I mean, a lot of the examples here are from films like Kubrick's Corridors. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, corridors in horror movies. Yeah. 
this, this, there's a particular kind of creepiness of the corridor, which is a, a fear of modernism of a certain kind, right? Yeah. It's a, it's like the, it's, it's a fear of the um, sort of... The, the, the interesting thing about the corridor is that like you can have two angles on it. But the, uh, of course, the two angles are always mixed up. But the angle that is privileged is the uh, kind of rational and or like equalitarian distribution process. <laughs> the corridor distributes in an equalitarian fashion, right? This is a point that they actually make in this, that there's an egalitarian character to the right. corridor. I mean, of course, historically, you, you know that this is not necessarily true. When the corridor appears, it's actually a way of getting the servants away of, from public eyes. Like you have two parallel corridors, one right. for the servants, one for the, the, the masters of the palace whatever so like but but especially in the way we're talking about this in the context of modernism like the corridor is the distribution gallery which was generally used until like the 1980s as a like a baseline distribution system for housing estates a lot of them social public housing estates uh because they're up they're cheaper to do because you, you need to spend less like stairs stairways are expensive right uh, you optimize use of space and di- vertical distribution if you use d- distribution galleries horizontally, floor by floor. And uh, like it, it, in the history of the 20th century, this creates kind of tensions because the whole idea that public, the public sector is spending money to build housing for the poor, that's bad enough. Poor people, please. No, I insist on... <laughs> I do not concede on this. Uh, but then... The, uh, You're using it ironically. I yes, guess. obviously. But then on on, but so this is bad enough. But then the fact that there is this, like spaces of like where different families of working class people are constantly running into each other and hanging their clothes to dry together in a kind of this kind of the whole notion that the uh, these uh, housing estates become kind of a a kind of a monster of production of communist insurrectionists, basically. <laughs> no, this is literally the debate. I mean, there's a, a, a famous example in Porto, actually, where the my city in Portugal, where I come from, the first social housing estate in Portugal, which obviously has a gallery distribution system because that's the optimal yeah. technical system. Uh, the municipality built it under relentless kind of pressure. It's, it's kind of a it's a famous object that had a lot of political struggles around it. And after it was built, like the level of critique directed against it as basically literally being, as in these words, a factory of communism. Like they were making communists by letting, uh, putting peer, poor people there because they were all huddled together in constantly encountering each other, sharing the same lived experience in the house, they already share the lived experience in the factory they work in, and now they're sharing the same one in the house. It's, kind of, it's just kind of constructing a collective subjectivity, a working class community. And the whole thing of the, the distribution gallery of modernism has that phantom, right? Right. Uh, it's critiqued from the right and an explicitly historically fascist right or the growingly fascist right. We're talking about and this example I'm giving you is from the 1920s. Uh, it's like precisely in the turn towards the fascist era in Central Europe, right? Like this is uh, uh, the critique of the, the creepiness of the corridor. Is the corridor is creepy because it breeds communists? That's why it's fucking creepy for these people, right? It breeds working class organization and common subjectivity. And of course, neoliberalism eliminated the corridor when the apartment building type, like urban morphology and building typology, was converted to middle classes and started be like the apartment started being normal among the middle classes and as part of like a consumer uh, private sector led production of housing. They did away with corridors and transition to a multiplication of vertical distribution systems because the middle class person doesn't want to encounter anybody. The the middle class person wants to leave their house, enter the lift, go down to the basement where the car is parked, get in the car and go to work. Like there is no interest in community construction. Yeah. 
there's no interest. There's, there's an interest in hiding any kind of massification, even if it's middle class. Yeah. Massification. Yeah. yeah. The horror is like seeing that there are other people like you, basically. Yeah. See, that you're not living in your private castle. Yes. Uh, a vast terrain of hills and valleys. and Exactly. And, Which tend, tend, tended to be bigger then than it is now. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so my, when I was reading, when I, when I was looking at these, these articles on like the kind of estrangement from the interior, right? Like the kind of positive estrangement from the interior. Right. Uh, and also this, this, uh, thing on the corridor, it's called corridors of uncertainty. Um, the uncanny and the corridor, this, this theme of like the uncanny. And Can I talk about the uncanny valley? In the sense of like the uncanny valley is the valley of fifty centimeters between your bed and your desk. <laughs> can we can we like, talk about that? So the new the architectural uncanny valley. What this uncanny <laughs> what this uncanny represents <laughs> is uh, is basically this a kind of fear and strangeness of proletarianization. Right. It's a kind of horror of proletarianization. A horror of the material, like this, the immaterial, like ghosts and ghostly character of the of the corridor, right? The haunted corridor, or like this kind of tiny interior that becomes like expanded and profound, right? This is like the horror of material reality. This is like the horror of political economy. That's right. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. It reminds me exactly of the David Lynch film Inland Empire. I don't know if you've seen that. Right. Laura Dern. No. I mean, uh, whatever. Whatever. I'm not sure. Probably not, I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I watched a... several David Lynch films. <laughs> anyway, go on. I rewatched this one recently. Uh, and there's a kind of, there's a weird kind of like Lost Highway or other Lynch films. There's a kind of a break in the film where the characters become basically different characters. Like the main character Laura Dern plays is a Hollywood actress. Oh. And in the second half of the film, she's like a working class woman living in a suburb, like maybe in Poland or something. Okay. And the, the her interior. <laughs> maybe Poland. Yeah, there's the whole Polish thing in the film, which is which is. Uh, I mean, I don't really understand it, but it's interesting. <laughs> Half the film's in Polish, anyway. Uh, no, I didn't watch this film. The, no, exactly. There's a like her mansion in the first half has weird moments and there are sets that have weird moments in this kind of Lynchian way. But the interior of her working class bungalow in the second half of the film is like evil, basically. Mm. Like elements of it, so there's a lamp on the on a dresser, there's a little corridor, there are doorways, everything takes on this kind of Lynchian right. uh, ominous menacing quality it's like it's like a horror mansion from a horror movie that takes place in a mansion yeah. except it's a tiny it's a crappy crappy uh, bungalow a, a crappy working class bungalow yeah fine yeah but the the incredible thing here and this is classic bourgeois culture uh is the ability to withdraw some sort of last ditch alternative meaning mm. from the process of like self-destruction right so for for Lily uh, Zarzitsky, author person, author person <laughs> in Architectural Review, this kind of like the the walls closing in becomes like this ironic, like paradoxically expansive moment of self discovery. Right. There's an essay by a guy named Pierre Ilner. Oh man, you're dropping the references, which man. has the same the you same are being argument. You're so erudite, our academic. Yeah, this is like how. <laughs> proletarianization is turned into like an artistic project for redemption. No. Like how the, yeah, proletarianization, like the rejection of it has turned into that. Well, it's, they, in their mind, it's turning proletarianization into a new opportunity for bourgeois culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which would save exactly. them actually from proletarianization. Exactly, yes. Right? They're not embracing proletarianization yeah, yeah, yeah. in any way. Um, no, the entire point is precisely avoiding embracing it. Yeah. But the, 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 the interior, like the question of scale in the interiors. Obviously, the entire thing is about 
how can I, faced with the uh, like impending doom of my reduction to a proletarian condition and the destruction of the fantasy of middle-class privilege I've been educated and raised with in the context of my middle-class parents and my upper uh, uh, higher education, etc., and supposedly being like at a certain point in my life being introduced to the court of like liberal intelligentsia, right? And in the liberal professions. Like the horror of realizing that that does not happen introduces this kind of complete, basically paranoid delusion of the reality of like, I actually think there's a kind of a psychoanalytical dimension to this, right? It's like, it's like the interior of the apartment represents a, a kind of regression into the interior of your mind. It's actually kind of Freudian, like strictly psycho, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis stuff happening here. This is kind of the, uh, like this type of people, basically architects, <laughs> like, the, the the perspective they have on this is really a kind of repression of trauma. Okay. Like in, in, in for Freudian theory, you have like the whole thing about like childhood trauma provokes a kind of repression of memory. So you, as an adult, you repress the memories, right? right? These people, instead of that, like the trauma didn't happen in childhood. The trauma is the moment of not being a child anymore. It's like the, the moment of becoming an adult is the trauma. And the trauma consists in the, when they realize that when thrust upon the adult world, all of the fantasies of uh, like that they were raised with of middle class, uh, middle class life, a middle class material existence, just like disappear. That's like they, and they are brutalized by this kind of reality and suffer deep trauma on that basis. And so, like the response they construct is repression, not of childhood memories, but of the direct lived experience as they are living it as adults. And, and as opposed to that, like, don't trust your lying eyes type of reaction, is uh, a, a really kind of a, the construction of an imaginary, uh, like, it's, it's, it's fantasy play. It's pretend, it's, it's playing pretend as if we were children again. So like it's, it's like, a psychosis. It's a it's complete psychosis. Class psychosis. And it's like it's 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 uh it's uh, as you said estrangement. It's like a reverse estrangement. It's a uh, it's it's alienation, self-inflicted alienation in its purest distilled form that estranges the reality of the interior, not to understand its conditions, but to uh, do the opposite of what supposed like originally the concept of estrangement is supposed to do, right? Right. Like, like you have this kind of imaginary construction of vast Lords Lord of the Rings land like landscapes uh, within the, the the tiny cell, and that's the that's how the middle class con, con like consciousness can survive in the material reality. And of course, the material expression of this is that they can then write articles for architectural yeah. review yeah. <laughs> and somehow make this work in a way that they can continue to at least have a tiny fucking salary in some kind of pseudo-academic or pseudo-academic institution within which they can peddle the psychosis as an art project. Yeah. That's what they do. I, it, like, the example I find it is like most egregious about this and like complete gaslighting about the problem <laughs> Is the uh, like in the uh, Venice Biennale uh, two years ago? The last yeah. one. This one's not happening. Uh, the 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 winner prize thing. The Swiss Pavilion one was one of the winners of the prize, uh, which is specifically about interiority, precisely in the sense that this yeah. this uh, architectural review talks about, and it's exactly this exploration of size and scale in a completely perverse, uh, disjuncted, uh, p paranoid way. It's, it's obviously the problem is the number of square meters per capita 
that people today are able to afford because of real estate speculation. That's the problem that architects should be talking about. But if you talk about that, it sort of doesn't count as architecture. You can't right. aestheticize this as a right. project. And so you can't aestheticize this as a project so the discipline of architecture itself can't deal with it in the models that it has established for itself in the postmodern age. And this middle-class psychosis doesn't relate to the problem in this way. And so what it does, and it's, it's kind of hilarious, obviously. I mean, if anyone's looked at the Swiss Pavilion award-winning uh, kind of exercise in gaslighting, it's precisely about scale. So you have like doors that are huge, doors that are tiny. The, the ceiling is doing this kind of accentuated perspectival things in which you kind of analyze in Wonderland eating yeah. mushrooms kind of weird effect where you are a giant on one end of the corridor and a, and a tiny person on at the other end. And it, it kind of, it plays with scale in this way. And people found this delightful and incredibly interesting. And it's questioning the way we relate to things. And, like, and, and it's also a perfectly good example of this whole way in which people transform sociological issues into psychological issues, even though I just did that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But like it, it becomes about like how you relate to the size of things of when you were a, a child, basically. Right, right. And that's the kind of autobiographical. Yeah, exactly. Which is precisely version. what all, all of these articles do, obviously. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's absolutely hilarious as gaslighting. Yeah, it seems obvious that the the whole point of the pavilion is to get you to play pretend that your flat is bigger than it actually is. Exactly. Or to when your flat is small. For that to be kind of like somehow fun or cool and like a, an aesthetic gesture. Like, right. oh, look at me. I'm in a tiny place. How cute. Exactly. That, that's and, and the two things are not like even either or. As right. we've seen in this piece, having a tiny flat becomes an opportunity to live in Middle Earth. Yeah. Right? That's like literally. Can I read it? Project. Can I read a little snippet from the. Oh my God. This is no. the same author's other photo essay. All right. Quote. Locked tight away from the inimical outside, from the air's mute buzzing, the eye turns in. Photographers point their lenses back towards themselves, towards the home and its happenings, and the camera, as a mechanical tool of hard truth and fixity, of cool representation, becomes also an agent of distortion. Through endless, tireless looking, the intricately known is set to see as familiar forms shift and expand into broad and alien territories, the lingering image drifting aslant into an uncanny ocean. This person just saw the Swiss Pavilion and is like, I found my ticket. I'm exactly. just going to run this take through exactly. different... Uh, okay, this, so, is my, this is the COVID version of that, of the Swiss Pavilion. I think architects and maybe people in general should like be forbidden from writing in these kind of fake poetry prose. <laughs> like this kind of style in which what, what you're doing is like enumerating a diversity of experiences, right? And trying to find a density of uh, like, it, all, all that it is, is really kind of, I, I, I don't have another word. I'm going to say the word gaslighting for the like, yeah, yeah, third no, or fourth time. But that's the right word. This is, this is gaslighting, but this enumerating style is like a formal, it's the formal style of gaslighting in like uh, neoliberal woke uh, opportunism, basically. There's another passage here that recalls exactly the Swiss Pavilion. The eyes go to ground to rub into carpet bristles, open field to crawl. The same desks, chairs, and cabinets now loom large, monumental entities taking on the city scale <laughs> with toy trucks to whiz around mouse houses and slip under shoe. This is, this is literally regression to yeah. child. It's exactly what I was saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is aggressively, I want to be a baby again because adulthood is shit. Yeah. And instead of confronting myself with the reality of proletarianization in adult life and yeah. joining together with the historical proletariat to overthrow the neoliberal elite that has stolen my right to have a fucking house, yeah. instead of doing that, you just retract, return to baby shape and to the, babe, to the, to the yeah. childhood perspective in which everything seems far bigger. This yeah, yeah, is yeah. literally what yeah. it is. Remember when you were a kid 
and things were bigger than seemed bigger than they actually were. Yeah. If only you could regain that power. Exactly. Uh, everything would be fine. Exactly. And the 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 the, the difference between the, the uh, kind of liberal notion of alternative lifestyles and this form of class psychological regression. Like the difference between these two things, it, it, it becomes the same thing. It, it becomes literally the same thing. Well, I think we learned that no matter what the conditions are, architects have a, have a great way of finding both the silver lining and the way to make it worse at the same time. Yeah, it's like, how can we turn every silver lining into a massive fucking storm cloud? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think this question of scale and interiority is something we're going to return to probably again and again. Yeah, this is this is the problem. Yeah, stay tuned for uh, whatever <laughs> comes next. We don't know yet. <laughs> Bye. Oh shit, did you see this about the hundreds of right-wing protesters that descended on London today? They were like responding to a, a call to protect the monuments these people i think i think they're called like the statue defenders or something they're shit. actually called the statue defenders <laughs> yeah that's fantastic yeah it's like i'm shocked like wouldn't you know that actual literal fascists are the people who really believe that architecture matters <laughs> <laughs>